Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? How many kids do a classroom? Homes.com knows these are all things you ask when you're home shopping as a parent. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, test scores, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by Homes.com's dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds looking fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear leaves and debris with the 40-volt leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at the Home Depot and on homedepot.com. How doers get more done. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Criminalia. This season, we're exploring the lives and motivations of some of the most notorious stalkers throughout history. I'm Maria Tremarchi. And I'm Holly Fry. So you probably recognize that quote that Maria kicked things off with. And if it sounds familiar, but you can't quite place it, I will help you out. <laughs> it's from A Tale of Two Cities, which was written by Charles Dickens. And of course, Dickens is considered one of the best-known fiction writers ever, certainly in the Western world. And with each passing century, he continues to be regarded as perhaps the greatest novelist of the Victorian era. Certainly, probably the most famous, at least for school children here in the U.S. He is responsible for classic novels. You are going to know all these names. Oliver Twist, A Christmas Carol, which everybody knows because it <laughs> inundates us from November through December. Maybe October. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> 
David Copperfield, A Tale of Two Cities, as we just mentioned, and Great Expectations, among many other writings. And it's accurate to say that because of this high level of output and success, over the years, Dickens attracted more than a superfan or two. So it actually wasn't uncommon during this time for writers to begin their careers as journalists and That's what Dickens did. He worked at the Mirror of Parliament and the True Sun until 1833. And it was because of his experiences as a journalist and the number of influential people that he was able to meet through those journals that Dickens was able to do something he really wanted to do as a writer, which was publish a book. He's climbing that ladder. Exactly. He did get to publish his book, which happened in 1833. That was titled Sketches by Boz, and it was published under the pseudonym Boz. That was his childhood nickname. And we may know him best for his huge list of novels that he wrote, but Dickens did a lot of other work. He edited weekly periodicals, he wrote travel books, and he was very involved with charitable organizations. Just three years after the publication of Sketches by Boz, so this puts us in 1836, 24-year-old Dickens married the 21-year-old daughter of a man named George Hogarth, who was someone that Dickens had previous business dealings with. They had worked quite closely. And that woman was Catherine Hogarth, and she and Charles Dickens went on to have a 22-year marriage, which produced 10 children. So the same month that he and Catherine married, the first installment of The Pickwick Papers was published. Now, this is one of the most popular novels of all time in the Western world. This collection of loosely related adventures was published in serial format, so came out a little bit at a time between 1836 and 1837, and it was wildly successful. And from that point on, there was really no looking back for the famously private Dickens. Speaking of that marriage. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about those children for just a moment. It is pretty widely reported that Dickens really enjoyed being a father, specifically to a young brood of children. And he wrote and produced plays and other fairly elaborate holiday productions at their home to entertain friends and guests such as the Tennysons and the Thackerays, also famous writers of the time. This, of course, involved all those kids. Right. Uh, we have a whole players group. <laughs> right. I, ha- I have a stock cast of 10 <laughs> I can work with. Uh, but as his kids got a little bit older, though, it's said that Dickens became much less interested in them. They kind of aged out of the magic window for his, his right. fascination. Nobody wanted to do those little plays anymore. <laughs> <laughs> the second they become rebellious, I picture him being like, you're out exactly. of the play. Exactly. <laughs> they hit that age and he's like, out. <laughs> You've, your voice has changed. You cannot do this anymore. <laughs> going to cast your younger sister. <laughs> so I am going to actually keep talking about these kids for just another minute because there is uh, something we should really address about their name and their nicknames that their father gave to them. And as you're about to hear, how could we not talk about this? (laughs) So Dickens is known for his unique and often kind of hilarious character names in his novels. There's Paul Sweetlepipe, uh, I believe, uh, Lord Lancaster Stiltstocking, and the Porkinghams, um, (laughs) all a favorite, all come to mind. And Uh, things weren't really all that different with his kids. So some of the children were actually named for famous writers, such as Alfred Tennyson Dickens and Henry Fielding Dickens, but it wasn't just their real names. Right. They had 
nicknames. <laughs> they all had nicknames. <laughs> and you can tell, like, as he, that he really did love having a, a young brood of children. <laughs> right. So there were nine living children because their daughter Dora had died in infancy. So we're going to talk about each of these children and their hilarious and adorable question mark nicknames. It's going to take a minute, though, because it's nine children. So first of all, Charlie, who was the oldest son, was nicknamed the Snodgering Blee. <laughs> it just, just it keep... what you want your dad to call you, for right? sure. Right? You're like, Dad, how could you? Not in front of my friends. <laughs> um, his eldest daughter, uh, Mary, was known mostly as Mamie, but she also had a nickname, uh, the Mild Gloucester. His son, Henry, was known as Harry, or just H, most of the time. But he also answered to a couple of other names, including the comic countryman and sometimes the jolly postboy. <laughs> there was also Francis Chickenstalker Dickens. Um, and that name honors a character from a, a Dickens novel, which actually almost all of these nicknames do. Right. Then we have Walter Young Skull Dickens. I would kind of love if that's what my family called me. Young Skull! <laughs> we can start calling you Young Skull. Sandwiches are ready, Young Skull. Please come inside. So I'll introduce you from now on. <laughs> this is um, Young Skull. People will be like, that skull is not young. Let's move on. <laughs> um, Alfred Tennyson. Uh, he was known as Skittles. And I, not the candy. <laughs> I know I have questions. I'm like, is there a connection betwixt the two? Sydney Dickens had two nicknames. One was the Ocean Spectre, which sounds sort of dramatic and mysterious. I love that. I actually feel like that one's somehow related to Skittles, because for me, Skittles makes me think of like a, a little crab, you know, sort of running around. Huh. Well, the other nickname that Sydney had was also maritime in nature. It was the Admiral. <laughs> oh, yes. And then there was Kate, who was one of the youngest children in the family. And Dickens gave her her specific nickname because of her hot temper. Kate was known as Lucifer Box. <laughs> <laughs> I just, that's... Just um, take a moment. I'm going to back <laughs> away from that one. Um, and then there was the baby, which is one of the nicknames. I think most most large families will sometimes call the youngest child the baby. Yeah. Right? Do, do you have the baby? Even I... As an adult human, people would be like, oh, you're the baby. And I'm like, sure. Right. Yeah, I'm a baby. That was his son, Edward. But Edward didn't continue to be called the baby throughout his life because he grew into a new nickname, which stuck with him for the rest of his life. And that was Plorn, which actually began as Mr. Plornish Maroon Teagooner. <laughs> These are like the things you would call a pet, right? I was just thinking they're great, around. like, cat names. <laughs> Phew, bless Edward for putting up with that and somehow oh. negotiating it down to Plorn. I know, right? He's like, drop the mister, please. That's a long list of really great and funny nicknames. So I'm going to take us to uh, Dickens's own childhood and life for a minute. And this is before he became famous. So he was born in 1812, and it was into kind of a lower middle class family and neighborhood. His father was a clerk in the Navy pay office, but ultimately he was sent to debtor's prison. And at age 12, Dickens supported his family by taking a factory job where he pasted labels on shoe polish bottles. Uh, his novel, David Copperfield, is actually considered largely autobiographical, especially this time. 
And it is also believed that Dickens likely lived with epilepsy. Modern doctors have noted that the way that Dickens described what he called, quote, the falling sickness, as it was known in the Victorian era, bears striking medical accuracy when you compare it to descriptions of epilepsy. And throughout his works, several of Dickens's fictional characters, including monks in Oliver Twist, are described as also having symptoms of what we today would diagnose as epilepsy. As an adult, Dickens really liked being active. He was known to go horseback riding. He was known to go on really long distance, like 20-mile hikes. He frequently entertained his friends, and it turns out he really enjoyed playing practical jokes. He was a magician, and he practiced hypnotism, and it's said that he would hypnotize Catherine to help alleviate her headaches. Although he regularly practiced it on others, he always refused to be put into a trance himself. Dickens also loved, and we got to repeat this, he loved (laughs) all things paranormal. He was, at least allegedly, a member of London's famous Ghost Club. That's a group that investigates reported ghosts and hauntings. We're using present tense because that club is still around today. Mm -hmm. Although if you look at its history, some indicate that like after Dickens died, it fell off for a while, but then was revived. But uh, you can look it up today if you're just, you know, looking to join a paranormal investigation and research organization and you happen to be in London. Absolutely. Maybe Dickens will haunt you. (laughs) Fingers crossed. Right? Yes. So uh, let's take a break for a word from our sponsor right now. And when we return, we'll talk about Dickens mania. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? (laughs) Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Hey, everybody, it's Holly. Listen, I've been doing stuff on stage since I was a kid, which means that I have been doing my makeup since I was a kid. And I can turn out a look when I need to, but on my day-to-day, I really like to keep it a little more relaxed and low-key. I don't have time for a full face most of the time. But that also means that Thrive Cosmetics can have me covered no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something on stage, like I have an appearance or a live show, or I'm just running to the grocery store. Something in their line is perfect. And what I really love and what's important to me is that they are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And to me, cruelty-free is very important in the cosmetics I use. I mentioned that I've been doing my makeup for a long time. I've gotten older (laughs) in that time. And one of the things that I've done to refresh my look is switch over to their brilliant eye brighteners and use something like a rose gold shade to really like go all around my eye and then just blend it out and get a daytime smoky look. It makes me look a little more youthful and more refreshed. And it's just easy as pie, and it means that I don't have to mess with a whole ton of products. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash criminalia. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash criminalia for 10% off your first order. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Listen, you listen to true crime podcasts. You know that the world can be dangerous and unpredictable and that there will unfortunately be people who want to hurt each other. And so it's kind of nice to get a little peace of mind by having a good home security system. Just take a few precautions. 
and I recommend looking at Simply Safe Home Security. I've had my home broken into in the past, and it was a terrible feeling, even though nothing that bad really happened. Aside from an intruder, I just really like knowing that I have a security setup that lets me check in on my pets when I'm not home. That is a huge peace of mind giver when I am out traveling. Simply Safe sent me a whole home security system, and I was really, really impressed by the variety of indoor and outdoor cameras they offer. And the whole thing is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash criminalia. That's simplysafe, S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash criminalia. There's no safe like Simply Safe. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Welcome back to Criminalia. Dickens' career and life changed significantly when he went on tour. It was in 1867 that Dickens kicked off a 76-date tour across America, which has since been described as the Victorian version of the British invasion, including the arrival of the Beatles at uh, John F. Kennedy Airport in New York City in the 1960s. Dickens had toured the U.S. once before in 1842, and his fans gave him a very warm welcome, literally trying to tear the shirt off his back to get themselves a souvenir. I marvel at these things. I know. (laughs) I marvel at these things. That's the kind of behavior I think people think of as very modern fan mania, but it was going on then. Between Dickens and Lizdomania, like there was a lot to unpack in terms (laughs) of being a fan of someone in the 19th century. Dickens, by the end of the tour, described his experience as primarily disenchanting. He complained, we quote, I can't drink a glass of water without having 100 people looking down my throat when I open my mouth to swallow. (laughs) 
So this type of celebrity or rock star status is pretty commonplace today, and that's certainly augmented by the connectivity that we've achieved. But in the mid-1800s, it most certainly was not, and he just was not prepared for this level of constant gaze upon him. Absolutely not. And as we can see, he had a really hard time adjusting to it, as most of us really honestly might. And his quote is, how queer it is that I should be perpetually having things happen to me with regard to people that nobody else in the world can be made to believe. So between the first and second tours he made of North America, and despite the 22 years and 10 children together, Charles and Catherine ended their relationship in 1858. Dickens is on record stating that he was, quote, totally incompatible with his wife. You would think he might have figured that out more than two decades later, yeah. but... <laughs> but he did. The pair separated, but they did not ever divorce, because at that point in time in Victorian society, divorce would have been quite scandalous because of how famous Dickens had become. Like, if TMZ had existed then, they would have been <laughs> all over this. They would have been following him. There would have been paparazzi in the bushes outside of his right. hotel. Cameras everywhere. <laughs> But the thing was, he didn't really treat the situation with care. He slandered his wife's name publicly. After 10 children and some postpartum issues that she had, he thought that she had grown fat, tired, and dull. Um, I've Caring. come up with a, a new use for the time travel machine, and it might be to deliver. Uh, I, I'm not a fan of violence, but I would want to perhaps just, you know, jab him with a sharp stick and be like, what is wrong with you? Just once. Just once. It does count. Uh, he also <laughs> characterized his wife as weak-minded and, by and large, embarrassing to him. And he also said that she was an unloving mother. So clearly that divorce was all bad blood. There was not much amicable about it. No, no. And it's also around this time that Dickens, who was then 45, began an affair with an 18-year-old actress who was named Ellen or Nellie Turnin. Um, it's, it's really not known if that relationship began before or after he and Catherine separated. Uh, but it's known that he did do his best to hide his new relationship. He always maintained, though, that Nellie was not his mistress and they weren't having an affair, but uh, everyone modern day uh, knows that that was just a lie. <laughs> and because he feared the press would discover them, he, he didn't really travel with her at all, and he did not allow her to accompany him on his second tour. And that second tour was very big news because while the first tour had been pretty intense, the second tour created one of the first modern mass media celebrities. He inspired what's often called Dickens mania. So there's this wonderful description of how Dickens looked while he was walking around Boston, which I, I believe his tour began in either New York or Boston. So this is fairly early on. And if ever there was a great way to describe the style of what could be a Victorian rock star, this might be it. So Dickens, we quote, who had a gleefully gaudy fashion sense that attracted attention and some revulsion, was a particularly striking celebrity to encounter. He had fans who tore at his fur coat and one took an impression of his muddy boot print from the gravel. It was really quite a scene. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's funny because I didn't know until way late in life that Dickens had been sort of this like crazy dandy. Me too. <laughs> I, I think because I associate him with his works, which are by and large about, you know, like I think of Bob Cratchit as like right. his stand in in that story and somebody who's very, you know, kind of clothed in like these dark tattered cl- no that wasn't him at all not at all and i had no idea and uh, you know when i when i was going through school we certainly didn't learn anything otherwise um but his that that description of him so i was telling holly when i first read that description of him that he reminds me of a victorian age keith richards because he's very flamboyant and he's got like what at the time was was considered this utterly cool sense of style and yet you look at it and you're like none of that works but it totally all works yeah yeah they don't teach you that in school no. you don't no, nowhere in it nowhere in any of my my history or lit books was it like he was a fancy pants right He had a lot of scarves hanging in his closet. (laughs) Right. So that, of course, was reported in the press. And so were a lot of other things because the American press fixated on reporting things like his personal habits. Uh, They printed that he did not use mustard at a particular restaurant in New York City as though that was newsworthy. We don't know which restaurant, but in case you're wondering, for our New Yorkers, uh, Katz's Deli, which is famous for its handmade mustard, did not open its doors until 1888. So we know it, it was not that one, and he was not slighting cats. Right. He was about 20 years too early for that one. <laughs> Maybe it's because of him that they were like, we got to make our own mustard. There you go. There's our next theory. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, So uh, this tour, this second tour to the U.S., Dickens was a hot ticket on the literary tour circuit here. And there was a time, actually, when Dickens considered a stage career rather than a writing career. And it really showed in his readings on tour and his readings anywhere. He was known as a gifted performer and he did tours, he did public readings. And every time he would, he would act out passages from his books as if he was on stage. And as a writer too, he would act out his characters before writing them into his novels. He he wrote plays, he performed before Queen Victoria. And uh, from time to time, he also accepted roles in, in amateur plays. Yeah, so those cute little plays he was putting on with the kids back home for his friends were not his only theatrical moments. He wanted to do it for himself. (laughs) Right. And here's the thing. He was a hot ticket. Like, people wanted to see him when he toured because he was excellent at it. He was the master of ceremonies that you would always hope to see. He has been described as dynamic, quick, and observant, and just having an amazing zest for life that kind of pulled his audience right along with him. And maybe he just hypnotized them all. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So mainly what people saw was what Holly just described. But there was a flip to that, though. And he he has also been described as being high strung, impatient, and also prone to depression. Commonly two sides of the same coin, for sure. So it was on this second American tour when Charles Dickens met the Bigelows. He was staying at the Parker House Hotel in Boston. He usually dined there. He spent his evenings playing games like charades there with his manager and his publisher, as well as this couple, the Bigelows, who were visiting from New York City, and they were also staying at Parker House. So I'm actually going to interject something here right now. This is the same Parker House that is famous for Parker House roles. Uh, (laughs) Uh, And they were invented in 1870s, so he missed those as well. (laughs) 
Uh, but this is also the part of the story where we don't talk about delicious baked goods, but instead we move on to the stalkery portion yes. of the story. So the Bigelows, we have Jane and John, and when Jane Tunis Poultney met the author and attorney John Bigelow, they met in 1850, and he was immediately smitten by her. Four months later, they married, and they went on to have nine children. John Bigelow edited and co-owned the New York Evening Post from 1849 to 1861. That was before he became involved in a career of international diplomacy. In 1861, so that is when his, his New York Evening Post time ends, he was appointed by Abraham Lincoln to the American Consul in Paris. And at this point, his career really took off, because from there, he became charge d'affaires before becoming envoy extraordinary and minister plenipotentiary. And in 1865, so just four years into this diplomatic career, he moved into the position of American ambassador to France. He became very influential in France, in Napoleon III's court in particular. He was so influential that he is credited for helping the Union win in the American Civil War by convincing France not to provide aid to the Confederate States. And then there's Jane. Jane Bigelow was known as Jenny to her close friends, and she seems to have had a profound impact on her distinguished husband. He wrote of her, and we quote, she was a woman of notable beauty and social charm. Her family deemed our courtship rather brief, but there seemed to be no occasion, on my part at least, for prolonging it. Years after her death, he wrote, quote, Without her, my career in the world would not only have been very different from what it was, but far less satisfactory to myself and to others. Okay, so let's get real. John may have been a very influential diplomat, and he may have credited Jenny with his success, but his wife was actually not exactly what most people would have expected <laughs> of the spouse of someone in his position. Uh, there is a story at one point of her slapping the Prince of Wales on the back. I'm sure he was surprised by that. <laughs> a silly gesture, but at the time that would, I mean, even now that would be horrifying. So subtract yeah. 160 years off of it and it's really horrifying. There are a lot of other similar stories of poor or inappropriate behavior on her part. And it was actually rumored that John's career was really stifled because of her behavior and that he lost out on the coveted position as American minister to London because not everyone adored her as he did. So Jane, I'm going to call her Jane, not Jenny. We're not friends. Um <laughs> <laughs> Jane was a socialite from Baltimore. <laughs> um, and she was about 40 years old at the time she met Dickens, who was probably also in his maybe his late 40s at this point. Um, she was well known in political circles because of what her husband did as his career. And yes, also because of that whole slap thing. Um, so <laughs> she was also really well known in both New York's social and literary circles. And that's because of her patronage to emerging writers and artists. She quite literally opened her home to important and influential writers when they were in New York City. For instance, several times she hosted Oscar Wilde. She also notably hosted Charles Dickens. And it's when she met Dickens that things really began to change for Jane. So we're going to take a quick break here. But when we return, we will talk about what came to be known as the Bigelow Terror.
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep experts. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with just-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now, in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited-edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Welcome back to Criminalia. Let's talk about how someone might go from being, say, insufferable company to being a stalker. So much of what we know about Jane's obsession with Dickens actually comes from the diary of another woman, 
That is Annie Fields, who was a Boston Society hostess, and she was the wife of Dickens's publisher. Annie was present for many of the games and dinners that were held while Dickens was in town. So she witnessed a lot of things, and her descriptions are a good peek into how Jane went from, quote, obnoxious to stalker behavior. It's interesting that she quotes that, too. Like, she very specifically calls her behavior stalker or stalkerish. So Annie also described Jane and her behavior as the Bigelow terror, which I'm quoting, because who could make that up? Um, things really began to sour when Jane began to regard Dickens as sort of her own personal property. She began to threaten any woman who even vaguely expressed interest in him. And that was whether they were flirtatious or not. And she harassed anyone who used their connections as a way to meet him. And for the cherry on top, yes, it keeps going, she verbally and physically attacked an elderly widow named Mrs. Hertz, who had come to call on Dickens. She considered Dickens one of her favorite writers, and after his reading at the Westminster Hotel in New York City, wanted to meet him. So, while Charles Dickens seemed to get along just fine with John Bigelow, he didn't really seem to enjoy Jane's company, surprisingly enough. Uh, recorded by Annie in her diary, we quote, he has the deepest sympathy for men who are unfitly married and has really taken a special fancy, I think, to John Bigelow because his wife is such an incubus. Uh, that's correct. She <laughs> called Jane Bigelow an incubus. That probably should have been succubus. Right. Which is the female iteration of an incubus. But we know what she meant. <laughs> right. But there's really no question about her intent in describing her this way. And it is certainly not exactly a favorable opinion of Mrs. B. Yeah. So based on his experiences during his first American tour, uh, it was the one in the 1840s. Um, Dickens had already installed security guards outside his door 24-7 to prevent fans from entering or just in general bothering him throughout his second tour. And after the Hertz situation, he didn't really change his security much, uh, except for one key thing. The security guards were to keep Jane Bigelow away from his room at all times. <laughs> Yes, it's keep anyone who might want to come see me away, but especially this person. Especially her. <laughs> I have this image where he's like holding her picture up. He's like, this is right. her. Yes. They, they all have a sketch of her in their right. pocket. <laughs> Despite this obstacle of constant security trying to block the room from her, Jane continued to try to see Charles Dickens several times while he was in New York City. Each time she approached his room, she was, as requested, whisked away by security. So now, banished from Dickens' social circle, she started to hang around the hotel, just kind of hoping to bump into him or see him, like to orchestrate an accidental, oh, you're here? I'm also here. <laughs> In response, Dickens started to ask his friends to kind of run defense for him and give him a warning if they saw her anywhere. <laughs> Right. So he could send security down to the lobby. Oy, oy, oy. I know. She was persistent. Uh, so with his return across the pond, actually, Dickens had little contact with Jane after the tour, uh, but they found in her papers after she had passed away some correspondence with several prominent people. Among them was 
uh, the writer Wilkie Collins and the poet William Cullen Bryant. Uh, Also along in that correspondence were political leaders, civil activists, and her mother. Uh, It doesn't appear, though, that Jane corresponded or otherwise interfered at all with Dickens once the tour ended and he went back to London. And we mention these papers because contained within those letters is a twist that kind of takes this story to another level. So William Wilkie Collins was an English novelist and a playwright. He was known for writing The Moonstone that is widely considered to be the first modern English detective novel. And Wilkie was obsessed with Jane. No way. <laughs> Listen, clearly she had something that certain people responded to positively. Because her husband loved her. Her husband and Wilkie both thought she was amazing. And Jane and Wilkie corresponded, and it was quite a flirtatious correspondence that actually went on for about two decades. Yeah, and um, we're not sure when it ended. It may have ended around the time of Dickens. It may have ended around the time that one of them just got older and sicker. But Jane did pass away in February of 1889 after she had a long illness. In the New York Times, they ran her obituary, and she was noted that uh, even in her girlhood, I'm quoting, for her bright and witty conversational powers and her charming manners. They didn't mention anything about the Prince of Wales. Like, <laughs> no. And some people could not stand her. It was not ever in an obituary. It never right. would be. Dickens passed away nearly 20 years before Jane did. And despite the scandalous age difference and timing of their affair, Nellie, Dickens's much younger paramour, as you'll recall, she and Dickens remained together until he died of a stroke in 1870 at the age of 58. And when he died, the New York Times wrote, quote, death of the great novelist mourned by the people of two continents. So you may not recognize Dickens's influence in our contemporary lives unless you see a remake of, say, A Christmas Carol every year. But his stories aren't the only thing that we rehash. We, we even get to see Dickens himself as a fictional character haunt the things that we watch and the things that we play. And some of these examples, they, they may surprise you. Right. So Dickens shows up in the fictional worlds of our TV shows, movies, and novels as everything from a mesmerist to a character who himself stalks women. And he's also alive in video games. The Assassin's Creed video games, for example, are influenced by him, including Charles Dickens's London Stories missions. And it is not just his works that have lived on. His celebrity has too, certainly. Yes. And his style. Oh, Charles Dickens, you zazzy, zazzy thing. That's right. He knows how to work his security team, let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) And pick out a cravat, apparently. Yes. So, you know, Dickens had a bit of a chaser. Do you have one for us today? Yes. So uh, the chaser on this is actually because... While we were prepping this episode, Maria actually texted me and said, hey, did you know that he liked sweet alcoholic punches? And I did not, but I did some research. I did not either. <laughs> One of the things that he was particularly fond of, and it actually shows up in A Christmas Carol, it's part of a passage near the end, when Ebenezer is a changed man and he mentions that they will discuss important matters over a smoking bishop. And that is a punch, a sweet alcoholic punch. That's a very wintertime treat. So of course I was like, how do you make a smoking bishop? I don't want to make a smoking bishop. Um, (laughs) 
it, it, it's just a, a prolonged, if you're really into it, I could see where it might be fun. But it's one of those things like you got to plan a couple days ahead. This is a mold. Mold wine, right? Right. You yeah. you have to roast oranges that are, you know, pierced with cloves. And then you have to boil red wine and then soak the clove pierced roasted oranges in it. And then you add ruby poured. And I'm too lazy for all this business. <laughs> Says the woman who made the mushroom recipe. Right. But here's the thing, right? Like, not only is it all of this effort, but then you have a terrine of like... yes. A drink that you may or may not like. And keep in mind, I will confess up front, I'm not a big wine drinker. I'm definitely a spirits lady. So I thought it might be fun to try to come up with a cocktail that kind of is inspired by and to small extent mimics the smoking bishop, which I am calling the sloppy bishop. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty easy and it surprised me in one of the aspects of it that I will tell you about. So the sloppy bishop is very easy. Um, It's three ounces of ruby port, two ounces of cranberry juice. Um, Mm -hmm. I use a low sugar cranberry juice because I don't like how sweet they can get. Mm -hmm. Uh, One ounce of triple sec. So you get that orange flavor in there. One ounce of gin. Oh, a half ounce of black cherry puree. And then if you want just a dash of bitters, I like to use a bitters that has some cinnamon in it for something like this and just give it a little stir. I also like most of these things to be chilled beforehand. So while the original one would be a warm punch, this is definitely not. I think we need to get you a t-shirt that says, and if you want to add bitters. (laughs) If you want to add bitters. Well, you know, bitters change the profile of your drink. So not everyone loves them. I didn't drink them for a long time. I mean, I've really only gotten into bitters in the last six months to a year. And even so, I'm like barely tiptoeing around them. But um It didn't taste quite right to me without the bitters. It needed Mm -hmm. something to kind of like bring out some of the other flavors. Here was the part that surprised me. I made this without the gin at first. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, something isn't right. It's missing something. And my first thought was to put vodka in it. But then for some reason, as I went to my stash and I was like, (laughs) which vodka should I pick? I saw a bottle of gin and I was like, maybe gin would actually work in this. And so I made one that was with gin and one that was with vodka. And to my shock, I preferred the gin version because, you know, I'm a vodka girl. I know. I'm one, not surprised that your first thought was vodka. (laughs) That's your go-to. But two, I actually, when you were reading off the ingredients, was really surprised to hear gin. So I I like the little story of how it came to be. Yes, we love a little experiment. We love a little A-B testing at our yes. house, where there also has to be like very careful selection of the barware so that you don't get confused which has which in it, right? True point, yes. So I have some barware that has ghosts etched on it, and ghosts <laughs> are for gin because they both start with G. That's how I remembered that one. <laughs> Whatever works. <laughs> I didn't want to become confused and give out the wrong recipe, but that is the sloppy bishop. which to my surprise, I really, really enjoyed. It's another one too. I know I always say this, but for anybody who likes to play around with these, but maybe finds any cocktail a little too much or the, the flavor too intense, you can always dilute that with your, a sparkling water, Mm -hmm. a ginger ale, a lemon lime soda, like a soft lemon lime soda, anything in that space. Great to mix in and just soften up the edges. 
Still yummy. It gets sometimes a little more crisp because of bubbles. You could throw some champagne in there and really take <laughs> off. Um. <laughs> I could see what you're going to be doing this evening. You're like, I can throw in these five other ingredients. Let's well, there were <laughs> there were in researching the smoking bishop. I found out that there were other punches called like the smoking pope and That's other things. And, and I forget which one it was that did involve champagne in it. And I was like, hmm, I will have to pursue that later. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Jane might approve of that. She'd probably go right. with champagne. Yeah. Maybe. I bet she would have she would have had a sloppy bishop with me and started, you know, oh, smacking smacking high level royals on the back like they're old <laughs> pub friends. Isn't that how it works? Uh, how you doing, Charlie? <laughs> Damn. Ooh, I'd be terrified. I'm pretty brazen and I would be terrified to do that. So we hope you are not terrified and that this has been a fun little adventure and an eye-opener regarding the nature of Charles Dickens and his U.S. tours. And we hope we will see you right back here next week with Criminalium. We'll have more stalking and another chaser. (laughs) Criminalia is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.